This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg So we're up to chapter 39, page 533. And previously we learned that although the whole purpose of creation and the whole purpose of the soul descending into this world is in order to physically do the mitzvah, to act, to take your hand and do the mitzvah, the deed, it's only by doing the mitzvah you're really fulfilling the desire and the whole purpose of creation, the desire why God created the world. But nevertheless, the Torah says, if you do a mitzvah without intent, it's like a body without a soul. As he puts it in very stark relief, if you only do the mitzvah without any intent, you have the, you have the main event you have. You fulfilled Hashem's will. You fulfilled the purpose of creation. You've done the mitzvah. You got the deed done. Versus, if all you have is refinement, sensitivity, love, philosophy, meditation, higher levels of consciousness, you have nothing. You have zero. But nevertheless, the ideal is not just to do the mitzvah, to have the objective fact, the objective reality, but the person also plays a crucial role in this whole the person the personal consciousness your personal thoughts your personal intent your sensitivity your delicateness your egolessness your refinement your personal subjective self what you bring to the table to the mitzvah is a crucial part of the mitzvah It's very important. Hashem wants the mitzvah to have a soul. So the person is very important. So on one hand we say that the person plays very little importance. The personal subjective consciousness, that's a... That's not the essential issue. Essential issue is the mitzvah, the deed, it's divine. Which is greater than all of us put together and is totally beyond our consciousness and totally beyond any consciousness. It's, it's divine. So you've done the deed, you've done the mitzvah, you've got the deed done, and that's all that matters. As it says, the famous uh, parable that once there was a king who hired his uh, greatest uh, artisan to put in the crown jewels of the king into his crown. The most precious jewels that were treasured and stored by his parents and grandparents, ancestors that were never revealed to anyone. And the king wanted 
to remake his crown, redo his crown with these crown jewels. This artisan took the crown and his hands started trembling, his hands started shaking and he dropped the crown and he almost broke the crown because he realized what he's about to do and he realized that you're talking about the crown jewels and if he gets it wrong the king will never forgive him I mean these are the most precious treasures of the kingdom he couldn't do it he was paralyzed so what does he do he calls in a simple artisan doesn't understand anything about royalty doesn't understand anything about crown jewels he says listen I have a job for you I need some help could you do this sure sure and he does it Perfectly, no problem. And that's the analogy. Those who are in a very high level and a very sensitive and a very delicate and very spiritual and very deep and very profound, when they realize what's at stake, what we're accomplishing in this world through Torah and mitzvah, they become they would become so overwhelmed that it would paralyze them. They wouldn't be able to get the job done. So who does Hashem use? Us, simpletons. We have no clue. We have no understanding of spirituality. We have no sensitivity. We have no depth. We are like the, uh, called the souls of the feet of the Jewish organism, which is called the angel of death in the human organism. It's the least sensitive part of the body is the souls, souls of the feet. We are clueless. We are blind, deaf, and dumb. Spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb. And you know what? That's why we get the job done. (laughs) Objectively, we get the job done. This is what Hashem wants. And we do it. And it's done. So on one hand, not only is it not essential, the spirituality and the sensitivity, it can get in the way, it can interfere. It's in this world of action where spirituality is so reduced and so hidden and so concealed that we are clueless and spiritually blind, deaf and dumb. And our generation, which is so spiritually, such a spiritually intense darkness, and yet we get the job done. We are the legs that carry the whole body, the whole organs, that take the mind to the library and get the job. So if the main thing is action, And what we're accomplishing is greater than all of us put together and totally beyond our comprehension. And we're fulfilling the divine will and the divine purpose. So what difference does it make? You are conscious, you're not conscious. Higher levels of consciousness, not levels of consciousness. You're sensitive, you're not sensitive. You're vulgar, you're coarse, or you're refined. You're deep or you're shallow. You're focused or not focused. What difference does it make as long as you get the job done? So he says, no. It's not so. The Torah says, if you do a mitzvah without, without intent, it's like a body without a soul. That's not what God desires. God desires your soul. He wants you to do the mitzvah with feeling, with intent, with concentration. Your personal subjective self is very important. It's like the analogy of marriage. What happens in marriage? What happens in marriage is something that's 
something very objective, something that's greater than all of us put together. We are all the result of a marriage. <laughs> it's the continuation of life. You embody, you represent all your parents and grandparents and ancestors going all the way back to the beginning of time. So, whether the marriage was a great marriage or not such a great marriage, <laughs> satisfying marriage or not such a satisfying marriage, a happy marriage or not such a happy marriage, the bottom line is marriage is about something eternal, something infinite. Something that's greater than you, that will outlive you. At the end of the day, how many marriages are, are storybook marriages or fairy tale marriages? Or, you know, two people and they get married, and the bottom line is they created a family, they have children, and they created us, every one of us, as a result of this reality. And something that will live forever. So the reality of marriage, the objective reality of marriage, or the divine purpose of marriage. You know, how much you love or you don't love, or how much, how deep. You know, in, in the scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things. It's how much you're fulfilled and how deep and the end of the day the objective reality the fact is the mission is accomplished you've created something you've replaced yourself you've created something that will outlive you that will go on forever you fulfilled the purpose so the objective reality of marriage especially the Jewish understanding of marriage that it's two half souls that reality is there Nevertheless, you can't say that's enough. As long as it's objective, it's factual, that's not what marriage is. How much do you take out of the marriage? The marriage is a fact. The reality is a reality. Two half the souls, they belong together, they are together, they're creating something together. But how much do you take out of the marriage? You can take 1% out of the marriage, you can take 5% out of the marriage, you can take 100% out of the marriage. It could be a very impoverished marriage where there's no joy and there's no satisfaction and there's no love and there's no respect and there's no, there's no personal, emotional, deep connection or deep feeling. And it's very superficial and very shallow. And you can go through life. Many people go through their entire lives with that type of marriage. But it's joyless, very unsatisfying doesn't nourish you. There's no love, no great love, and there's no great connection, soul connection. There's no great meeting of the minds. And, and you troop through life, but it's impoverished. This is, not, this is not what Hashem wanted. The Torah states clearly. Hashem wants a marriage to be loving and joyful and respectful and deep and should engage your whole being every fiber of your being every bone in your body should engage your mind should engage your heart you should feel marriage you should feel the love you should feel the 
you should feel nourished, you should nourish, you should nurture each other, you should strengthen each other, you should respect each other, you should grow together. So yes, the objective reality of marriage is something infinite, something that's totally beyond us. But the purpose, the ultimate goal, if you have just a factual marriage without the life and the soul and the personal, doesn't engage you personally and doesn't move you personally and doesn't touch you personally, it's, it's like a body without a soul. It's very limited. Yes, you've taken 1% out of the marriage. It's there. It's a fact. Without marriage is nothing. All you have is love, romance. That's nothing. That, that, that's, you're building castles in the air. Nothing, there's no result of it, there's no reality. A family is eternity. You're building a family, you're building something real, something that's going to last and outlive you. Momentary love, instant gratification, momentary satisfaction, that's, that's, that's a poof in the wind, that's nothing. Subjective, personal, love, religion, spirituality. It's like romance without marriage. It's very nice, but it's meaningless. In the scheme of things, in the infinite scheme of things, it means absolutely nothing. That's not what it's about. The action is what counts most. It's a marriage, you're building something, it's a reality. Family, eternity. But a marriage without a soul, without intent, is never. It's It's a body without a soul. God wanted the marriage to be rich, colorful, loving, deep, profound, constantly growing, constantly challenging each other, growing together, stimulating, fulfilling. So the personal is very important. It's very important. It all depends on you, what, how much of a mentor you are how much of a kind person you are. Not being kind to strangers, being kind to your spouse. How much of a ego, how egolessness you really are. Because this is really the test. The test of egolessness is not in this with strangers. It's at home. How, how much could you stretch? How flexible you are, et cetera, et cetera. This is the test. This is the crucible. This is where Hashem, this is the laboratory. Everyone is given a laboratory. You're home. You want to see what a person is really all about? It's at home. This is where you work out your personality, your character. This is where you grow. This is, this is your foundation. So the personal subjective, the kavana, the intent, the spiritual is very important. It's not just about the objective fact, the deed. You've done the deed and it's cold-blooded and it's... it's, it's, it's that's very superficial. That's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants the richness and the love and the warmth and the light and the depth. And, the, and that depends on the person. That depends on your personal state, how refined you are, how much you've changed, how much you've worked on yourself, how much you've worked on your character, worked on your personality, worked on yourself. And that engages the full person. That you have to focus and you have to concentrate and you have to be real. So your personal subjective reality means a lot. It's not just, well, I've done the deed, so what difference does it make? So I'm harsh, and I'm coarse, and I'm unchanging and unyielding. So what? As long as I'm doing the right thing. It doesn't work that way. Hashem wants the heart. 
He wants the person. He wants the soul. He wants the genuine change. He wants a person to change. He wants a person to grow. He wants a person to be involved. He wants a person to be engaged. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants you. And if he doesn't have you, then it's very impoverished. And, and, and you're not fulfilling, ultimately you're not fulfilling the divine will. Because what you're saying is that Hashem exists everywhere, except where it matters most, in my heart. In my personal, my mind, in my heart, it doesn't exist. I don't have time for Hashem. I don't have room for Hashem. There's no room in me to open myself up for Hashem. That I should open my heart and open my mind and really change and really grow and really work on myself. Hashem, you're wonderful, you're good in heaven, you're here and down earth, but in, my, in me there's no room. There's no window for Hashem in my personal life. That, that's what it boils down to. That's what Kavana is. Kavana is you. Hashem exists everywhere in the universe except within me. I'm not, I'm not making any opening for Hashem. I'm not ready to sacrifice one pinky. I'm not ready to lift up a pinky. I'm not ready to sacrifice anything real within me. I'm not ready to grow. I'm not ready to change. I'm not ready to work on myself. I'm not ready to refine myself and polish myself. I have no interest in becoming a more sensitive person, a more loving person, a more caring person, a better person, a kinder person, a more gentle person. Hashem, I'll give you everything except myself. I'll give you my actions. I'll give you my deeds. But please don't ask me to become a better person. Don't ask me to change. I'm not ready to give you my kavana, my personal, myself. Yeah, myself is just one, it's, a, it's just one part. I'm giving everything else. Hashem says, no, no. I want you. I want you, you, your personality. I want your character. I want you, your mind, your heart. I want you to open up, to make room for me. Become a little egoless. Make room for me. And when a person opens himself up and works in himself and becomes a little more egoless, then you become a kinder person, a gentler person, a finer person, a more giving person, a more generous person, a more flexible person. And then your marriage can be successful. Then your marriage will be loving, colorful, meaningful, nourishing, satisfying, etc. And this is what he now in chapter 39 is going to explain the whole world of angels, the world of souls. Because, yes, in the infinite objective, from the objective infinite point of view, this whole world of, whole realm of angels and souls and spirituality, to God it's, it's, it's insignificant. The end and the whole purpose of creation is the physical, this world. To transform the darkness into light and to do the deed and to do the mitzvah. And the infinite scheme of things, that's the only thing that really matters. But God also created the whole realm, a whole world of angels and spirituality and higher levels of consciousness and love and awareness and sensitivity and depth and color, colorfulness, sublime, higher realms... There's a, there's a reason, there's a message here. Why did God create this whole realm? Souls, personal, individual, subject, subjective. Because this is very meaningful to God. He created it for a reason. And we have to bring this whole world to bear on the mitzvah. 
if you just do the mitzvah and it's divorced from anything personal, the mitzvah leaves you cold and leaves you unmoved or untouched or uninspired. Then, then you've, you've ignored this whole world that God created, this whole spiritual realm that God created. If we don't bring that world to beer into the mitzvah, then we're missing a major, major component. So God wants us not only to do the mitzvah, He wants us to do the mitzvah with heart, with soul. He wants our heart. He wants us, our personal commitment and connection. And this is very precious to God. God wants your heart. He wants you. Otherwise, you're bringing God into this world. You're creating a home for Him. But you're slamming the door at His face. You're bringing Him to your house and you're shutting the lights. I mean, He really feels welcome. <laughs> you're really doing the right thing, yes. You're on the train. You're doing the right thing. And you've done the central part. But I don't feel welcome. It's not a warm welcome. Where are you? Are you home? I need you. Is anybody home? There's nobody home. You created a home for me, but there's nobody home. Where's the host? There's nobody home to greet me. There's no one home to welcome me. Where's the warmth, the kindness, the smile? So Hashem needs me. So it's not enough to do the mitzvah. You just do the mitzvah. And you're doing the right thing. But it's all about ego. It's all about self. So yes, you've done, you've done the right thing. You're married, but it's, it's, it's so impoverished. You're taking 1% out of it. It's so shallow, so superficial. So unsatisfying, so unloving. So that whole realm that God created of love and awareness and spirituality and soul is completely ignored. And God created this world for a reason. In the higher realms, He created it for a reason. And the reason is to take all, this, take all of this and to bring it to beer into the mitzvah. To do the mitzvah, but to do it with heart and soul. Imagine you're married, but you're taking 100% out of it. It's the way Hashem wants a Jewish home to be. It's loving, it's kind, warm, it's affectionate, it's respectful. And each one, and they're growing together and creating, building something beautiful together. There's peace in the home, Hashem is present. Hashem's name is present. It's part of the husband and wife. Ish, the Hebrew word for man is ish, is yud. The Hebrew uh, word for woman is Isha, which is hey, it's Hashem's name. Because Hashem wants to feel welcome, not just to the mitzvah, but He also wants to feel at home. Not only get the deed done, but also to do it right. It should be an illuminated home, a warm home, a welcoming home. So this is an essential part. And this was the whole essence of Hasidus. On one hand, Hasidus place such an emphasis on the action and the deed, on realizing the infinite objective truth and reality of doing the mitzvah, the physical mitzvah, how it's divine, and the only way to touch the divine is only by physically doing the mitzvah, and that's the whole purpose of creation, that's the whole purpose why the soul descended into this world, versus spirituality per se is completely meaningless, it's like romance without marriage, completely meaningless, irrelevant. Missing the whole point. On the other hand, Hasidus, the whole emphasis of Hasidus was 
that a chassid, a Jew, has to work on himself. You have to become egoless. You have to, you have to tap into your soul, reveal your soul, illuminate your life, polish yourself, refine yourself, reveal the diamond that's within you, the diamond in the rough. Get rid of the rough and reveal the diamond, that polished diamond, that finished leather, silky hide. Take that leather hide of the animal and turn it into something silky and fine and, and, and smooth and comfortable. And This takes tremendous effort and tremendous work, but that's what Hashem wants of us. Hashem wants us to our kavana. He wants our personal subjective self to be fully engaged, to be changing, to be growing deeper, higher, wider, Constantly challenging ourselves, constantly growing, and to be alive. He wants us to be alive, personally alive, vibrant, full of energy, soulful, depth. And this is the challenge of the chassid. The chassid has to be like a, a Jew, has to be like a body with a soul. You have to have the healthy body, but you have to have a vibrant soul as well. And the deeper you are, the more alive the mitzvah is, the deeper the, and the more you draw down godliness into this world. You bring down more godliness into this world if you do the mitzvah properly. Because then Hashem is not only in the mitzvah, Hashem is within you also. You've opened your heart, you've opened your mind. Hashem is within you. As it says in this week's Torah portion, the mission statement of every Jew built for me a temple and I will dwell in them because within each and every one of us we all carry a temple within us and it doesn't say I will dwell within it in the temple in them in every single one of us because every single one of us carries a temple so we have to let Hashem into our hearts and let Hashem into our minds into our personal life into our subjective life we have to get personal Judaism has to become, has to get, we have to, God wants us to get personal. And to get personal, that's kavana, your personal self, your personal connection, your personal commitment, not just getting the job done, but technically, mechanically, cold-bloodedly, superficially. That's not what he wants. He wants, he wants our personal self. He wants, when you walk into the house, you can tell if it's a happy marriage or not. You don't have to see the husband and wife kissing each other. It's not appropriate. It's not modest. They should kiss in front of strangers. You don't have to. You walk into a house, you can see if there's shalom by it, if there's peace in the house or not. If there's love, if there's respect. It just fills the house. Like light fills the house. You just sense it. There's respect. There's love. There's, there's you know, they, the spouses respect each other and love each other and constantly strengthening each other and growing together. You can sense it. So, so too, God wants this world. It's a marriage. He's married to us. And He asks us to build a home so we can live together. Yeah, so yes, you can be married and the deed is done. But that's not, God wants a loving marriage. He says, I want you. Where's your heart? Where's your love? Where's your... Soul, where's your open? Why don't you open yourself up to me? Become a little egoless, a little less ego, egotistic, a little chained. I want you, your personal, your heart, you. 
Don't hide behind the mitzvah. I'm doing the mitzvah and it doesn't matter where I'm at. That's true. Do the mitzvah. Get the job done. No matter where you're at. But that's, that's not enough. That's just the beginning. That's the foundation. But I want, I want 100% out of this marriage. Because Mashiach will come. That's exactly what it's going to be. When Mashiach will come, God will move in to this world, will move in with us, will move into Israel and the temple and live with us forever, consummate his marriage. And it'll be a happy marriage and a warm and a beautiful marriage forever, 100%. So when we do the mitzvah today, the mitzvah should also reflect that reality because we create that reality today by doing the mitzvah today. So it's when we do the mitzvah today and we do it with heart. It's a heartfelt mitzvah. It's a soulful mitzvah. We love Hashem. We're doing it out of love. We're doing the mitzvah because we want to connect with God. We're not just doing the mitzvah. We're doing the mitzvah because we love God and we want to connect with God. And we do the mitzvah because we sense the reality of God and we are aware of the reality of God. The more we open ourselves up and the more we change and the more we open ourselves up to Hashem, and you make the dwelling place for Hashem within us, that will bring down the godliness. That will bring down God into this world. And that will prepare and create Mashiach. That will create that world when God will not only be in this world, but God will be fully revealed in this world. This is the paradox that Alter Rebbe is grappling with in these three chapters, 38, 39, and 40. The action versus the spiritual, personal, subjective. So, even though it appears superficially that the last few chapters he's been like downgrading the importance of spirituality and personality and the personal and the subjective and the action is what matters most. So now he's he's explaining that that's not that's not the case. Personal is an essential part of the Jew's life. And you have to do the mitzvah lovingly. And if there's no love in the Jew's life, you're missing an essential ingredient. And now he's going to explain the different levels of love. We finish in the last chapter that just like within the different categories of life, the highest forms of life are man and animal life. So too, in the equivalent, in the spiritual realm, there are two levels of life, there are two types of love that we develop a love to Hashem, a love to God. There is the human type of love and there is the animal type of love. An animal life is instinctive. Human life is based has the advantage of having the mind, awareness, imagination, awareness, decision-making. So he says that's the difference between these two types of love that we developed Hashem. There's one love that's developed based on intellect, on a deep understanding, deep comprehension, profound comprehension that, that develop, develops into an intense love for, for God for Hashem versus the animal love which is more instinctive since every Jew is born with an innate 
inherent love for God. You don't have to develop it. You don't have to create it. It's, in, it's instinct. It's there. We're born with it. You just have to reveal it. You just have to remind yourself of it. You have to become aware of it. Allow it to emerge. And therefore, it ignites. It just reveals that natural, instinctive love that you have to God. It's much easier to develop because you don't have to create it. It's a deer. But it's not as intense, and it's not as deep, and it's not as profound. It's just deer. Even superficially, you can just tap into it. It's at, you're like you're carrying it at, at, at your sleeve. You just have to reveal it and remind yourself of it. And remember that you're a Jew. Remember you have a connection to God. And remember how meaningful it is to you. And therefore, you evoke this love that leads you to do the Torah and the mitzvot. I want to connect with God, and I want to do something godly because I have a natural love for, for godliness and for a God and anything, anything connected with God. And the way to connect with them is only through Torah and mitzvah. By doing godly acts. Every time I do a godly act, every time I, I think a godly thought, and every time I speak in a godly way, if I do the right thing, I'm connecting with God. Versus vice versa. In doing something that's uh, taking an act that's disconnected from, the, from God, godly, an ungodly act, or thinking an ungodly thought, or speaking in a way that's ungodly, I can't do that. I can't disconnect myself from God. So even that instinctive love is enough to motivate you to do the right thing, to love God, and also to respect God, and to be in awe of God, and not to violate, not to trespass, not to violate, not to do anything ungodly. So even if you don't have this earth-shattering love and this passionate love in your heart for God, this intense, deep, profound, consummate, all-consuming love for God, you just remind yourself, you just become aware of this natural love that you have for God. That's enough. Enough kavana. It's enough intent to guide you and to motivate you to do the right thing. So the mitzvah that you're doing also have a love. It's not the love of a human being. It's not the aware type of love, mature type of love, a fully developed type of love. It's more like an animalistic love, an instinctive love. It doesn't have to be too deep. It doesn't have to be too profound. It's just a natural instinctive Anything that's godly, I'm attracted to. And anything that's ungodly, like an animal will run away from fire, I run away from. I'm not going to act in an ungodly way. It's simply not acceptable. So if you do the mitzvot based on that kavana and that awareness, you're injecting a, a certain level of life, a certain level of vitality into the mitzvah, an animal life. Versus if you do the mitzvah based on the profound love, based on the profound understanding, then you're injecting into the mitzvah a much higher form of life. It's a much deeper mitzvah. You're not getting 50% out of the marriage, you're getting 100% out of the marriage. It's deep, it's profound, it's challenging, it's beautiful, it's colorful. Versus if you just put in a smaller level of kavanah, it's it's a much shrunken, much more reduced level of life force that you injected in the mitzvah. So it's a much smaller revelation of godliness. Just like in the the animal form of life is a much smaller revelation of life than the human life. So now the Rebbe is going to explain that these two types of loves we find also in the spiritual realms. We find the love of the angels versus the love of souls. Souls. The love of the angels are referred to in the Torah. The angels are referred to the Torah as animals. The analogies that the prophets used to describe the angels are animals. As Isaiah, Ezekiel said, I saw the face of the angels, like the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, the face of a 
of an ox. Why do they compare angels to animals? Because their love is like an animalistic type of love, meaning it's instinctive. It's just an analogy. There are no oxen in heaven and there are no <laughs> eagles. It's just an analogy that they're using that just like the animal, the animal has an instinctive soul, so too the angels in heaven have like an instinctive love to God. Versus the souls have a more mature, a fully developed love, which is based on a very profound and deep understanding of God. Let's learn inside, the bottom of 533. For this reason, For this reason too, the angels are called coyote, beasts, and behemoth, animals, as it is written. And an angel with the face of a lion is to the right of the divine chariot, and the face of an ox is on the left. So why does he compare them to animals? He explains. So they have no freedom of choice between good and evil as man has, and their fear and love of Hashem is natural to them. They need not create fear and love of Hashem through intellectual contemplation of Hashem's greatness, as is written in Re'ayim Mahemna, Pashat Pinchas. Because their fear and love of Hashem are natural and instinctive to them, they are compared to animals. In heaven, they are spiritual beings. So for them, to love God is natural. Just like for us, it's natural to love materialism because we're physical. The angels are not physical. The angels are spiritual, supernal beings. So therefore, they, by nature, are drawn towards spirituality, toward, towards godliness. It's, it's, it's something natural. It comes natural to them. It's instinctive. It's not a question of faith. You don't have to have faith in, in, in the material. In heaven, you don't have to have faith. It's clear. It's so, it's so clear. It's so transparent. It's so obvious. Godliness and spirituality is so obvious that you're naturally drawn towards spirituality. So it's an instinct. It's natural. Therefore, tzaddikim are on a higher level than them, the angels. The abode of the souls of tzaddikim is in the world of Berea, creation, whereas the abode of the angels is in the world of Yetzirah, formation. There are different worlds. You have the world of Atsilas, the world of emanation, which is the divine world. And then you have the beginning of creation, the world of creation. And then you have the world of formation, and, our, and then the world of action. So the world of formation in general, that's the place of the angels. The world of creation, that's the world of, of, the, uh, of the souls. Now, the difference between the world of creation and the world of formation, as Al-Tarebi will explain soon, what's the difference between these two worlds? What's primary in the world of creation and primary in the world of formation? Why are we discussing the angels? The Tanya is not a book of angels. It's not a book about angels. <laughs> you know, an angels We're not we're talking to people here. The, the hero of the Tanya is the Benini, average, the average person. Why is Al-Tarebi giving us a description of the world of angels? Why are we... So, one explanation is that he's coming to point out that the, the souls of the tzaddik and ultimately every, the entire Jewish people are compared to tzaddikim. In other words, the souls are superior than the angels. So, although the angels are rooted in the world of formation, of, of emotions, of instincts, 
the soul of the Jew is much is the soul of a tzaddik is more profound than the soul of an angel. It's much deeper spiritually, much deeper than the depth and the spirituality of an angel. Another explanation, because this would only explain the level of the tzaddik. What about 99.9%, the rest of us? Why is it important for us to know the level of the angels? So the Rebbe explains, because he's coming to teach us that, that we, shouldn't, we shouldn't minimize the value of our kavan, of our level of intent. Since we are not, the majority of us, are not on the level that we can reach the level of a human being, so to speak, the level of that rich, deep understanding that develops into a very mature and rich, and passionate and all-consuming, consummate love for Hashem, most of us simply don't have the capacity. We don't have the zitzvahs, we don't have the depth of mind, we don't have the, 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 the depth of emotions to develop that all-consummate love for God. We should be madly in love with God. When was the last time you felt madly in love with God? At best, we can develop our in, remind ourselves or get in touch with, connect with that instinctive love that we all have, that innate, inherent love we all have. We're Jews. We have a soul. And therefore, we naturally are attracted to godliness. When a Jew hears something godly, he responds instinctively. We get excited about godly things. Even things we don't even understand, we don't fully understand. When we hear a godly story, a godly miracle, we get all excited. Even if we don't fully comprehend it, there's just something innate, instinctive about us that we just respond to godliness. A holiday, we, we get all excited. We, we barely understand the significance of the holiday, but just something inside of us just wakens up and just instinctively responds. We respond to godly things. We see something godly, it moves us. When something is ungodly, we're repulsed by it. So, not to minimize, instead of minimizing and feeling like we're second class and, and that this is not the same and how can you compare this animalistic type of life versus the human life, now the Rebbe is bringing, look at the angels. The angels have this powerful, powerful spiritual energy. And even the angels only compared to animals. Their love is natural and instinctive. Look how far they go with their love, with their natural instinctive love. Look what a powerful, what a powerful energy it is and how far they go with their love. They carry, they're the chariots, they carry the throne and the divine throne. So this, is, this should give a Jew strength. That don't look down at yourself and don't minimize your achievement, your accomplishment. Or That even if all you can accomplish in life is to reveal the natural love and the instinctive love that we have, that alone is very powerful and powerful enough to make Judaism something that's very close to you and very near and dear to you. You have all the energy you need and all the strength you need. Just like the angels. The angels are alive. The angels are vibrant and dynamic and alive. So we too have the same, we have enough energy to propel us and to give us the kavana that we need, the enthusiasm and the love that we need to inject our Torah, mitzvot, our Judaism with life and vitality. This is so only in the case of ordinary angels. There are, however, higher angels in the world of Bria whose service of Hashem is with intelligent fear and love.
it is written so in Raya Mehemna that there are two kinds of holy chayot, instinctive and intelligent. I, those who love and fear are instinctive, and those who create love and fear intellectually, as is also written in Etzchayim. So in general, the Malachim, in general, the angels, belong the world of Yitzira, of formation. There are certain angels that are from the higher realm, the higher world. But nevertheless, like he brings down from, from the Zohar, there are angels who are instinctive and there are angels who are pure intellect. But nevertheless, even those angels, the souls are superior than the angels. The souls are deeper than the angels. The soul in general is much deeper than an angel. A soul comes from internal versus an angel is external. God created the world. He created the world, including the angels, with his speech. Speech is very external. Versus the soul, says God breathed. When you breathe, you're breathing from within. And God said, and the world came into being. Versus the soul is the very breath of God. That is the soul. God breathed into his nostrils his breath. That is the soul. So the soul comes from within God. It's much deeper. That's why it says the souls come from God's thoughts, while the angels were created through God's speech, just like the difference between thought and speech. Thought is much more inward. Thought is much more inward, more connected to the soul than speech. No one knows what you're thinking. But when you speak, everyone knows what you're speaking. You can stop speaking. You can't stop thinking. Thought is much closer, much more intimate to the soul than speech. Even though they're both garments, they're both not the soul itself, but nevertheless, this is a garment that's closer to the soul than speech. So the angels... The souls versus the angels in every world, the, angel, the souls are much deeper than the angels. But in general, the angels are more emotional and instinctive versus the souls are more intellectual and much deeper, a much deeper understanding of God. And now he's going to explain the difference between these two worlds, the difference between the world of creation and the world of formation, the world of creation. What's more dominant in this world is the intellect versus the world of formation. What's more dominant is the emotions. And the difference is the world of creation is the beginning of creation. But the world of creation is like the analogy that's given is it's like the fish in water. Fish are absorbed in the life source. Fish can't survive out of the water for a moment. Not like human beings. Human beings can't exist without the earth. We come from the earth. All our nourishment comes from the earth. But we're not swallowed up in the earth. We're separate from the earth. We roam on the earth. We depend on the earth. We live off the farmer. We live off the earth. But we're not connected to our source and we're not swallowed up in our source. Versus the fish are not only connected to water, they're swallowed up in the source. They can't live outside of water for a moment. In other words, they're so absorbed within their source. Versus mammals are disconnected from their source. They rely on it, depend on it, but they're disconnected, they're separate. So that's the difference between intellect and emotions. Intellect is absorbed in its source. When you understand something very deeply, 
the, the world of intellect, it's still, it's still connected to, to the source, the, the souls. And those angels from the world of Bria, the world of creation, they understand, they comprehend very deeply. They understand how they can't exist without God. How God is constantly creating them. So they feel and they understand that they're constantly absorbed within the source. They truly understand and grasp how without God they couldn't exist for one split second. So they are constantly absorbed within the source. Their whole being is their understanding, their profound and deep understanding. How they are absorbed constantly within God. So although they are, it's the beginning of creation because they are separate from God, and the fact that they have to understand that there is a God and God is creating them, that means that they're, they are outside of God. And they're comprehending how God is constantly creating them. So they're separate, but they're like the fish in water. They're absorbed within, within their source. So it's the beginning of separation. It's not a real separation. That's why it's a holy world. The world of creation is mostly good. It's mostly godly. There's no ego. Because their whole being, their whole separation consists of their intellectual understanding that they don't exist, that there's nothing but God. <laughs> so the, their whole being is understanding that there is no being. All there is is God. So how, how, how egotistical are they? There's hardly any ego. There's hardly any separation. Just like the fish. The fish, there's no ego. There's no separation. The fish is swallowed up in its life source. There's no ego. There's no separation. But of course, the fish is not water. But it's absorbed within the, within the water. So too, the angels and the souls in the world of creation are not God. They're created beings. They're spiritual beings, sublime beings. They're beings. But they're beings with profound and clear minds and clear intellect that understand very profoundly and very deeply the truth and the reality how God is constantly creating them and therefore they're really absorbed within God. They never left God. They understand this. So yes, they're not God and they're separate, but there's hardly any ego there. It's mostly good and very little ego, very little... There's no room for ego. There's no room for any separation from God. There's no room for anything negative. It's purely, pure, purely positive. Not 100%, but most of it. Because there is some separation. But it's an absorbed, they're absorbed within the source. Versus the world, the next level is the world of Yitzhira. That's like a downgrade. It's, it's the world of emotions. Like the world of intellect and the world of emotions. The world of intellect is very deep, it's very profound. You're lost in your concepts. You're lost in your thought. Nothing else exists. You entertain yourself. You're lost in your idea. It's a very soulful thing. Versus the world of emotion is much more external. Emotions is how you relate to something outside of you. I love something outside of me. I'm attracted to something outside of me. Or I'm repulsed. I hate. I'm afraid of something. It's all you in relation to something external. So it, it is a greater separation. The world of intellect is you're absorbed in yourself. So you're still, you're still absorbed within your own soul. Versus the world of emotion is your soul in relation to something outside. It's a, it's, so it's a step down. It's much more external. So the world of emotion, the separation of God and the created beings of the world of formation, which are the angels of the world of formation, which have an intense love for God. But by definition, love means that there's a separation. Because you're loving something else, something outside of you. 
The fish in water doesn't love water. He is absorbed within the water. There's no separation. Love, by definition, is you love something that's separate. Two separate things, and they love each other, and they're attracted to each other, and they feel close to each other. So love, by definition, means that it's two separate beings that are love, love and attracted to, towards each other. So the fact that the angels have an intense love for God means that there's a separation, a pronounced separation between God, the Creator, and the Creator. But they have a love for God and have an attraction for God and for godliness in there. And they have this intense, intense love. But nevertheless, there's a separation. So this is like the world of mammals, which are separated from its source. Yes, they come from the earth. And yes, they rely on the earth for their sustenance. But they're separate. And surely not absorbed within the source. There's a strong relationship, a strong connection, a strong... But it's, it's a separate, they're separate. So that's the world of formation. Where God and the beings are much more, that separation is much more pronounced. So it's like a chain. It starts out with just the potential for existence. Just the seed of existence. Like the fish in water. It's still absorbed in the source. It's very close to the source. There's almost no separation between the two. It's just the beginning. And that leads to the next step. The world of mammals is a greater separation. The world of emotions. Now there's two separate things, but they're drawn together. And, are, and of course, that leads. In that world, the good and evil is half and half. Because now the ego is much more pronounced. There is a separation. Love, by definition, already tells us that there is a separation. There's, there's two entities, the creator and the creator. And then that leads to the third level, which is our level, the world of action, which is mostly evil. The separation is much more pronounced. The world of action is completely external. There's no emotions and there's no intellect. It's just action. So that's completely separate. Which leaves a lot of room for mischief, for ego, for negative energy, and separation. The difference between Bria and Yitzhak is as follows. In Yitzhak, only the Midot of the Blessed and Sof radiate, i.e. only the Sifrot of Hesed, kindness, Gulura, severity, etc., meaning the love of him corresponding to Hesed, dread and fear of him corresponding to Gehura, and so on, with the other for Yudok. For it is thus written in Tukumi Zohar and Eitz Chaim that the six Sifrot, i.e. the six Midot from Hesed through Yisod, nest in, i.e. pervade, the world of Yitzriah. What he is going to explain now, basically... You have the four worlds. The world of Atsilas, the world of emanation, of the divine world. That's where the Chachma, the spark, that's a vessel for the infinite, for the Ein Sof. The Chachma, basically, that's the world of Atsilas. That's where the world of Chachma is just a point, it's complete egolessness, it's 100% good, it's 100% holy, it's divine. Is completely unified with God because there, that's where the level of Chachma is dominant. The next level, the beginning of creation, separation, the spark of creation, the potential for creation, the atomic level, if you will, that's the world of Bria because there, the Bina, the intellect, the logic, the intellect is dominant. That's the dominant force. And therefore, that whole world, the beings of that world are also souls which have profound 
minds and profound and penetrating understanding of godliness with those special angels that are in the world of Bria. Then the world of Yitzhira, that's where God's, the emotions are manifest. God's emotions are manifest. The love, and that's why that love is permeated and what dominates in, that world, in this world, the world of angels, is intense love for God or intense awe of God, respect for God, awe of God. And then you have the last sphere, which is the sphere of Malchus, of communication. That's what dominates in this world, in this world of action. Because communication is completely external. Emotions. Yes, emotions are only in relation to something outside of you. You love someone, you hate someone, you're attracted to someone, you're repulsed by someone. But emotions characterize you. It's your response to something outside of you. I love someone, I hate someone. I'm attracted to something, I, I'm, I'm, I'm repelled by something. Communication is completely, entirely external. You don't need to speak to yourself. You're Robinson Crusoe. There's not, no one to speak to. There's no need to speak at all. The whole need of speech begins outside of you. So speech is completely external. That's the world of action which is completely separate, completely disconnected, completely egotistical, and that's why this world is so egotistical. There's so little love and there's so little um, understanding. It's just a world of action. And the potential for negative energy is so profound. Why there is so much negative energy, why this world could be so brutish and nasty, because all you have here is this very external, this very little revelation of godliness, this very little of the emotion, and very little of the understanding, let alone of the unity of the world of emanation. It's the world of action. Before Patzufin, consonances, i.e. configurations of the Sifrot of Atzilut, the world of emanation, radiate in the four worlds, Atzilut, Bria, Yitzira, and the world of action, Asya. One Patzuf, predominates in each world, representing the manifestation of godliness in that world. Because Sufim are A, Chakma, Wisdom, B, Bina, Understanding, C, Ze'er, Apen, literally the small image, i.e. the six Nidot, D, Mahut, in Atzilut, Chakma is the dominant Patzuf. Atzilut is thus pervaded with an atmosphere of utter self-nullification before Hashem. For Hakma, the dominant influence in that world represents the perception that Ein Sof is one alone and there is not besides him. In Bria, also called the world of the throne, Bria is the dominant Patsuf. Bria is therefore a world of intellect. The souls and angels of Bria are distinguished by superior intellectual appreciation of godliness. Yitzira is dominated by the six Midot, which together constitute the Parzuf, of Ze'er Apin. It is therefore a world of emotion. The creatures of Yitzira serve Hashem with great emotional intensity. Asiya, the lowest world, is dominated by the Parzuf of Mahut. Hashem's attribute of sovereignty invokes subservience in his subjects. Therefore, in our service to Hashem in this world, the emphasis is on accepting the yoke of heaven. To return to our subject, Midot are the dominant influence in Yitzirah. And therefore, this is service of angels whose abode in Yitzirah is mentioned above constantly, never ceasing day or night to stand in the fear and dread of 
Hashem. This refers to entire host of angels under Gabriel, which is on the left. Left represent Midah Gibura, which invokes fear and awe. Therefore, all these angels stand in a constant fear of God. Left, by the way, doesn't necessarily have to mean a weak. Actually, Gavura literally means strength. So it's interesting that it's the left. The left usually is the weaker, weaker arm. But um, Gavura literally means strength because it's much more vibrant. It's the, the, the Gavura, the person of Gavura is actually the person who has awe, is much more in touch. With, it comes from a much stronger place, a much deeper place. It's like, a, it's like the, the blood within you. The blood is passionate. It's alive. It's gavura. It's strength. But it's strength. It's life. So gavura is actually life. It's an intense life force. The reason why gavura is limiting is precisely because it's so intense. Therefore, it has to channel it properly. It has to limit it. Otherwise, it can just burst. Otherwise, it can... Like the veins have to channel the blood. Otherwise, the blood will just burst out. It's so intense, it'll just burst out. You have to contain it. And if you're not ready for it, you're not worthy of it, it's too intense, it'll just destroy you. Like rain. God limits the rain. The raindrops. If rain came down as one sheet, <laughs> it would destroy the world. So gavura, yes, it's, very, it's limiting. But it's not to limit. On the contrary, it's in order that the rain should come and give sustenance, and give life. It's life. It's dynamic. But in order for us to be able to handle something that's dynamic, it has to be limited. Otherwise, it's too intense. So Gvura is actually it's like a paradox. Gvura, on one hand, is strength. It's life. Passion. Without strength, without passion, there's no life. But you have to be careful. When you're dealing with passion and life, and like something that's vital and strong, if it's too strong, it'll destroy. The person can't handle it. So you have to make sure the person could be a vessel, a vehicle, so you have to break it down. You have to be limiting. You have to be rest- That's where restraint comes from. You have to be restrained. You have to be limiting. You have to be judicious. You have to be strict. Not, don't give more, more than necessary. Versus kindness. Kindness gives without any calculation. Just give and give. You know, you're not limited. Guru is limiting, but the reason why it's limiting is because it's strength, it's life itself. And if it's too strong, you're not going to do the person any favors. You have the person to be able to handle it. So that's why it's left, it's weak, it's, it's limiting, restraining, but on the other, uh, being judicious, but on the other hand, really, it's strength, it's life itself. So that's the world of Gavriel. Gavriel represents awe of God. The person who has awe is much more alive. It says the one who fears God is alive. It's interesting. The one who has awe of God is much more alive than the one who loves God. It's like you see in human nature, people who have the, the attribute of gvura, strength. They're very exacting, very intense, very deep, much greater depth, much more alive, much more exciting in a certain way. And people just loving and kind and generous and good, sweet. People who have a little sharpness to them. There's a certain vitality, a certain depth, a certain honesty, a certain integrity, a certain depth that's lacking in the person who's just loving and kind and it's just interesting. So that's the world of Gavriel. That's the energy, the pure energy of awe, of fear, of strength. That's the left. Continue. The service of 
they hosted angels under Mikhail. On the other hand, the Slav of Hashem, they stand in constant adoration of godliness, responding to Medotic Hesed, and so on. So on the other hand, love is the right hand. That is predominant. That is the stronger hand. Because love is the, is the leading emotion. Without love, there's nothing. Love is what makes the world go, go around. You know, even strength comes from love. If you have no connection to someone, you wouldn't be strict with them. It's only because there's a love, there's a connection, you care about them, that's why you're strong. That's why you come in strong. That's why you're strict with them. Parents are strict with their children because they love them. You don't love them, you don't care about them, you're not strict with strangers, you're not strict. So love is the predominant emotion because love is what leads to all other emotions. And that's the beginning. That's why love is always the beginning. Abraham was love. He was the first, the pioneer. The pioneering spirit is always love. Then comes the second step. Gevura. Now we have to be careful. Now we have to be more selective. Now we have to, we have to sharpen, fine-tune and and focus more. So that's the, the second step. But the first step is love. Love is always the first impulse. Without love, there's no, there's no beginning, there's no creativity, there's no... So that's the right hand. That's the pure energy of Michal and his whole camp. And every angel represents, embodies a different type of love. Different, because there's so, so, so much variety of love. If even in this physical world we have so much variety, how many potatoes do we have? And how many types of onions do we have? And how many types of taste do we have? And colors. Infinite varieties. How much more so in the emotional world? There's love and there's love. I love. What kind of love? There's this type of love and that type of love. And there's infinite variety. So every angel embodies a different, a different type of love, a different flavor of love, a different energy, pure energy of love. Just like you have a, every angel represents a different energy of dread, the fear, of awe. Any awe you can possibly experience is just a, the tip of the tip of the iceberg. It originates in the world of angels. There's that pure energy of pure awe and pure gavura. Uh, the world of Berea radiate the Chachma, Bina, and Dat of the Blessed Ein Sof, i.e. the upper three spirit, Chabad, of the Absolute, which are the source of Mino and their mother and root. For it is written thus in Tukhuni Zohar that Ima Ila'ah Literally, the supernal mother, i.e. the Sphera of Bina, described as mother of the world of Asilot, nests, radiates in the throne, meaning the world of Berea, with three Sphirot of Atsula, Chachma, Bina, and Dat. Because these three Sphirot, Chabad, of the Ein Sof, radiate in the world of Berea, it is therefore the abode of the souls of those Sadikim who serve Hashem with a fear and love that stem from understanding and knowledge of see, see, interesting. The angels, you have the angels who are awe, the left, the gevura, and you have the angels of Michal, which is love. Michal, Mimin, Gabriel, Mismoel. But by the souls, he says the souls serve God both with love and with awe. That's the superiority of a soul over an angel. Angel, and that's why angels are compared to animals. Animals are one dimension. There are certain animals that are kind, that are always kind. There are certain animals that are cruel and are always cruel. They don't change. A human being contains all emotions, a full kaleidoscope of emotions. We have a right hand, we have a left hand. We have love and we have, we have the opposite, awe. And we have compassion. 
So only a soul has the ability to contain both love and awe. And that's why in our service of God, we cannot serve God just with love alone. We can't serve God with, with fear alone, with awe alone. You need both wings. Just like in marriage, the Maimonides says that what's the ingredient of a healthy marriage? He says you have to love your wife as much as you love yourself, and you have to respect her more than you respect yourself. But you need both. A marriage that's only based on love is not a marriage. You need respect also. Respect is the equivalent of awe, of restraint, of stepping back, being in awe, respecting something. You can love your best friend, but you don't respect them. Your wife, you have to respect, not just love. Love is not enough. A marriage that's based on love is not going to last. A marriage that's only respect and no love, that goes without saying, it's not a marriage. But it has to have both, a combination of love and respect. Awe and, and, and love. Just like in our marriage to God, you need both. A bird needs both wings in order to be able to fly, in order for it to be able to find your balance, to fly, to soar. Because respect causes you to respect boundaries. When you respect your spouse, you treat them with respect. You respect their wishes. You take their wishes seriously. You take them seriously. You're not going to be unfaithful, God forbid. There's a respect. There's a boundary. There's awe. You don't take them for granted. Twelve days out of the month, husband and wife are not allowed to be together. You respect their privacy, their private space. Love unifies you. So you need both. You need love and you need respect. So the angels... The souls versus the angels, the souls are able to achieve. They serve God both with love and with, uh, with awe, which derive from their deep understanding of godliness. Continue. Because these three spheres, Chabad, of the Ein Sof, radiate in the world of Berea, it is therefore the abode of the souls of those Sadiqim who serve Hashem with a fear and love that stem from understanding and knowledge of Hashem's greatness. This love being called Reuta Deliba, the heart's desire, i.e. a desire created by intellect, as opposed to desire that transcends intellect, as mentioned above. From this reuta deliba, a garment is formed for the soul in the world of Berea, which is the higher garden of Eden, as will be discussed further, and as it is written in the Zohar, Parshat Vayichel. The lower garden of Eden is in Yitzira, and the higher garden of Eden in Berea. Ganeden. The Garden of Eden is a reward for your life in this world, for the Torah mitzvot that you did in this world. So depending on how you perform the Torah and the mitzvot, depending on that, that's the reward, that determines the reward that the soul receives and experiences in the afterlife, after the soul passes on. So those souls that perform the Torah and the mitzvot. The souls of the tzaddik, as he said earlier, who are on the level of like human life in comparison to animal life, who, who perform the Torah and the mitzvot with an intent that was born as a result of a deep focus and concentration and understanding and dveikut and connection with God, which led them to develop this mature, rich, intense, level of love, an intense level of awe of God. So that creates the garments that enables them to receive this reward. 
that their soul is able to go up to the higher level of Ganeden. That's called the higher level of Ganeden, the higher level of paradise, in which God's intellect is, is revealed, and therefore they're able to experience very profound understandings and deeper levels of understandings of godliness. And they constantly grow. Every day they grow. They move forward. Every day is a new revelation. And the excitement, the excitement that they experience is, is very intense. You know, we, we just imagine, we know how material things are exciting. Well, we get very excited about material pleasures. Material pleasures are the dumpings of spiritual pleasures. It's, it's the most external, superficial part of, of spiritual pleasure, to use the human analogy. When you eat, so your body processes the food. Everything that's healthy becomes absorbed in the blood, and everything else is just, is just uh, expelled from the body. The waste is expelled from the body. The the comparison between physical pleasure and spiritual pleasure is like the comparison between the, uh, the food, the healthy part of the food that really nourishes you and nurtures you versus what's left over and what's completely expelled. So all the pleasures in this world are nothing, are insignificant in comparison to the spiritual pleasure. Even within this world, we see the difference between one pleasure and the next. Could you compare a physical pleasure to someone who developed, say, a taste in music? The pure ecstasy, someone who really, really developed, not someone who's forced to play the piano but has no musical appreciation <laughs> and is just doing it because he has no choice. But when you reach a point when you really develop a taste for music, it's like heavenly. No physical pleasure can come close to the pure ecstasy and the pure pleasure of someone who's absorbed in his music and just, just closes his eyes and is just in a different world. His soul, your soul can pass out in ecstasy from the pure pleasure of pure music. Could you compare physical pleasure to the pleasure of someone who developed a pleasure in doing someone a favor and being kind to people, doing, helping people? I mean, someone who develops a pleasure for kindness, for you can't compare. Nothing physical can compare to the pleasure. It, it gives that person pleasure to be able to do kindness to Could you compare any physical pleasure in this world to the pleasure of someone who developed pleasure of, of intellect, of understanding? You know, Aristotle grew up in, in a royal family. He could have easily gone into the world of money, power, fame, politics, royalty. He gave it all up because it meant nothing to all the pleasures of wealth and power. I mean, he taught, he taught Alexander. All the pleasures, Alexander the Great, but all the pleasures, all the physical and worldly pleasures of power and strength and might and fame, it meant nothing. To it was insignificant in comparison to the pure pleasure, the pure ecstasy of figuring something out, of understanding something, of grasping a concept, understanding a concept. We're not talking about someone who has a good head. Many people have good heads, but they have no interest in developing their heads, no, in, no interest in, in the intellectual world. They couldn't care less. We're talking about someone who developed a taste for intellect and developed a taste to understand things and to figure things out. There's no, nothing in this physical world that can come close to the pleasure. Once you figure something out and once you develop an idea and develop a concept, 
So even in the physical world, we can, we can all relate to the idea that the more spiritual you get, the much deeper the pleasure. You can't compare a physical pleasure to a spiritual pleasure. How much more so? You can't compare any pleasures in this world. If a person lived for a thousand years and had all the pleasures of this world available to him, it doesn't compare, as it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, to one moment in the world to come of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. Pure spiritual pleasure. A pure spiritual pleasure is something that's so beyond us. We, we have, nothing, we have no, nothing to compare it to. Any pleasure you can imagine is nothing in comparison to the pure bliss. If you read the accounts of those who had near-death experiences, and they describe you know, the light, and they say in their words, it's indescribable, the pleasure and the sweetness. and It was so beyond our comprehension, and they were so drawn, their soul was just drawn to leave this world and drawn to the light and drawn to that sweetness and that pleasure. It's just beyond our comprehension. And that's just the initial contact, the lowest level of heaven, the lowest level of the Garden of Eden. Could you imagine we're discussing here the highest level of Ganet, the highest level of the world to come? Ganet and the alien, the upper level, the world of Bria, the world of pure intellect, of pure pleasure. How does, how does a person merit that his soul should be elevated to this world? It's a result of the Torah mitzvah, the tzaddik who did the Torah and the mitzvah in this world. And he did it with kavana. He did it with intent. And he did the mitzvah with, with, with his entire intellect was fully engaged. And he was totally connected and he developed a very deep, profound, mature love for God based on a very deep, penetrating understanding of Godness. His whole being was connected to God and his whole mind was totally immersed in Godness like a fish in water. So that developed, that gave birth to the garments that enables the soul to be able to sit and to receive this revelation of godliness in the Garden of Eden, in the higher Garden of Eden, which is in the world of Bria. This elevates the soul to the world of Bria. So the reward is a consequence of our actions, a consequence of how we lived, of what level of Torah Mitzvot we did. So if a tzaddik who does the level of Torah Mitzvot on the highest level, with the intellect, with the proper intellect and the proper intent, his soul, after 120 years, is elevated to the highest level, the level of the Garden of Eden, the higher level of the Garden of Eden. And this is a reward for the Torah mitzvah that we've done in this world. So, so the whole world of spirituality is very important. This is not just something to dismiss. Don't forget, after 120 years, until Mashiach comes, until the resurrection, the souls go into a spiritual realm. So no one is dismissing this realm. This realm doesn't matter. Who cares? All that matters is do, do the job. Get the job done. Who cares if you're a coarse human being? Who cares, if, who cares if you're not changing? You're not open to change. If you're egotistical. If you're not refined. You're not egoless. No. God created the world of spirituality. This is a very important part of our lives. And the soul after 120 years, after all the Torah and Mitzvah that were done, will go to the Garden of Eden, temporarily until the time of the resurrection. And it all depends what kind of life we lived in this world. If we lived a godly life, not only we did the mitzvah, but we personally and subjectively, our whole being became godly. Our mind became godly. Our heart became godly. 
and we loved Hashem and we wanted to connect with Hashem and therefore we did the mitzvah with concentration and focus and we poured our whole being into the mitzvah, then the soul will be elevated. And as a reward, the soul will be elevated to the world of Bria, which God's intellect is dominant there and the soul will derive the pleasure, will have the garment to be able to receive this deep understanding of godliness and to constantly grow in this understanding and this pure ecstasy and go from level to level and this is the eternal reward this, this is the ultimate reward so therefore it's, this affects us how we live our lives today this, is, this tells us how important it is if this is the reward for the mitzvah this tells us how important it is to do the mitzvah in a godly way not only we should do something godly but our whole being should be godly we should be engaged we should become godly not just the mitzvah is godly. The mitzvah is godly with us or without us. The mitzvah is godly. The deed is done. You've done something godly. No one can take that away from you. But where are you? Are you godly? That little detail called I. <laughs> that little tiny detail. Have I changed? Have I grown up? Have I matured? Have I become a little egoless? A little less egotistical? A little more egoless? If I open my heart, open my mind, open myself up to, to Hashem, that's important. Do the mitzvah with, you become godly. And pour yourself into the mitzvah. Then, your soul, as a reward, your soul, your being, your being, you, which is your soul, your being, after 120 years, will be elevated and receive its eternal reward, indescribable bliss, indescribable pleasure we elevated to the higher level of the Garden of Eden, Ganeden Elyon, the world of Bria, which, which is God's, the world where God's intellect um, is revealed. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.